You're listening to a Facts with Fiona Media production. This episode of Facts with Fiona is brought to you by Anchor, podcasting made easy from Spotify. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the fourth episode of Facts with Fiona. I'm your host, Fiona Moriarty, and this is Inside Playboy. I'm so excited to introduce my next guest, Jennifer Sagnor, best-selling author of Playground, a child lost inside the Playboy Mansion. We sit down for an exclusive one-on-one interview with Jennifer, who grew up in the Playboy Mansion. She gives a pretty mesmerizing look into what really happened behind the gates of Hugh Hefner's Magic Kingdom. She opens up about the roller coaster ride of a six-year-old girl being introduced to this dark, sexually explicit environment early on, but maturing and focusing on the fun times of the mansion as an adult. Besides growing up in the Playboy Mansion, Jennifer has worked in production and development at Spelling Entertainment, Miramax Films, and the Motion Picture Corporation of America. I caught up with Jennifer to discuss her life growing up at Hefner's Pad and her time at the mansion, which spanned almost four decades. Let's go to that conversation. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks so much for joining the show. I'm really excited to have you on. So I read your book, Playground, in less than two days, and I literally couldn't put it down. It was that interesting. What inspired you to write the book? Were you thinking about it for a while or did it just come to you one day? Like I was so tired of living in this vacuum, this world where I experienced and saw so many things that no one would believe. And I just really wanted just to get so much of the hypocrisies, you know, that I was seeing and all of this dark underbelly that I would see and no one would believe me. And I had to get it out of my system, you know, like I wanted to write about it to put it out there just so that I I thought maybe somebody outside my sheltered environment could relate or that someone else outside my environment would even believe me, you know, because I felt like nobody that I knew that I would try to tell these things to no one believed me. So I I felt very isolated. Like I really wanted to connect with other people across the country, across the world, anywhere. Just, I was just hoping that somebody would, you know, be able to connect with what I was sharing. In your book, you delve into a lot of detail of what you witnessed in the Playboy Mansion and how you progressed from this six-year-old child being introduced to it as this magic kingdom witnessing things that you had never really seen before, to growing older and finally realizing what you saw. Could you walk us through some of the things you witnessed in the Playboy Mansion? I started going there when I was six and I was, you know, with my father on a house call and I just, you know, would always go to him with him to different, different celebrities homes. You know, he would go to Aaron Spelling's house and the Sinatra's house just so many different celebrities back in the day. And Hefner's was just one of many that he would go to. And I just remember when I showed up there for the first time, he went off with Hef and was trucking him. 
and it already sort of like had a room there which I thought was really weird and I just because he already had a house in Beverly Hills so I was like wow that's weird the place was so massive and there was animals and monkeys and a zoo and obviously the the grotto and just like you know all the changing rooms were like all rocks and like caves in and of themselves and I was just super big into like hide and seek and spying on people and I was just always such a little tomboy that would like love to get lost in my adventures, you know? So I was always very like into mostly spying on people, I think even as a kid. And Mm -hmm. so I really just remember like going swimming and going under the waterfall and then, you know, underneath this waterfall, like you have to hold your breath. And then after you, you know, come up from the waterfall, it's like, you're in this massive, grotto this you know dark cave and I just remember you know seeing these people having sex and I didn't even I remember not even knowing what it was and I was age six and I just remember thinking I didn't even know what was happening I just heard this lady with this man and you know I think it was like John Belushi and it, it was just you know it's crazy I mean that was just the beginning of course I would go from my mother's house in Westwood to, you know, be with my father Thursday and every other weekend, I would sleep at the mansion, you know, when he would stay there when he wasn't in his house from age like six to 11. And then at age 11, my father's house was being remodeled. So we really never slept there. And then half gave me my own bedroom, which is room number six, like down the hall uh, from my father's room. And my father's was already had a room number two, which is right down the hall from Hef's room. I'd say from age six to 11, I was always there and, you know, I'd sleep over, but it was never like, oh, this is your room, you know? And then it was like at age 11 through high school, I had a room so I could either sleep there if I wasn't sleeping at friends' houses and things like that. I would start sneaking my friends up, you know, after school because of course none of their parents wanted them to come up. So I had to be super sly and bring them behind their parents' back. I mean, it was a great time. I had a lot of fun. It, you know, I was there many decades. I saw many, 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 many of the women and wives come and go, girlfriends, whatever. And unlike what's really being portrayed in this doc series that I'm a part of, I mean, a lot of these women were there willingly. You know, they were there because they were benefiting greatly. I mean, yes. if I knew the rules of the Playboy playground when I was a kid, I know that these women <laughs> knew the rules at 19. I mean, I knew the rules at, you know, at 11 and 15 and 17. Now, there's lots of different perspectives. I mean, for me, I was there from 1975 until 2010. And my father was there until Hefner died. So my father was by his side alone when he passed in 2017. In your book, you talk about the girls' submission process to Playboy. They were submitting headshots from all over the country. They came from out of state to make it as models in the Playboy mansion. I know you were close to a particular playmate who was Hef's girlfriend at the time, Kendall, but were there any other playmates that you became close with throughout your tenure at the mansion? I did. I mean, I was, you know, Sandra Theodore used to babysit me when I was little. Uh, Dorothy Stratton used to babysit me. Um, I was friends with Anna Nicole Smith. I mean, so many different playmates throughout the decades. I mean, we're talking like 40, 40 plus years. I really like so many of the girlfriends. Um, I mean, just like I said, starting, I guess the earliest memories would be 
like Sandra Theodore, who's also in this doc series, who, you know, had her own different experience. Um, she would babysit me a little bit. Um, my father was always with Hef. So it was always like back in the day in the 70s and the 80s. It was like the men hung out together and the women hung out together. So, yes, you know, mostly the playmates weren't really always allowed in the room when the guys were playing gin or Monopoly or backgammon. And I used to pride myself on being allowed in the room because I, I was a kid, <clears throat> they were playing these games and I just, you know, always felt like it was such an honor to be, you know, kind of a part of their boys club. Um, and so I really adapted their way of thinking and really their way of viewing the girl. Then uh, I think that they looked at the women, like the women were using them and I was always under the impression that they were just mutually using each other. You know, that was always my perception that the men were using the women and the women were using the men and that it was like a consensual agreement. And this was sort of like, you know, analogy I could think of as, you know, sort of like normalized prostitution in a sense where, you know, it's like, these are the rules. If you're okay with them, great. You know, we have weigh-ins, we have you know, we need you to look a certain way, we, you know, act a certain way, partake in certain activities at night. I mean, the rules were pretty clear, you know, in return, you'll get a salary, you know, in return, you'll become famous in return, you'll make a lot of millions of dollars. It's like, you know, there's the door if you want out anytime, because there's like at least, you know, 100 girls willing to take their place. And, and were drugs there? Absolutely. Did you have to take them? I mean, I, I didn't see anyone force fed drugs. Um, I personally did not. I mean, I saw the girls wanting to take drugs because many of them, maybe they were straight and they didn't want to like have like group sex with other girls or whatever, which was obviously part of the guidelines of, you know, benefiting financially. And, uh, and so if they wanted to, benefit they would have to partake you know again this was all up front and I think maybe the drugs obviously made it easier to do things of course but it wasn't like anybody was like tied down and given and that's not what I saw at least I saw people wanting to drink and wanting to do drugs and openly doing it and I did a lot of drugs with a lot of playmates and pretty much most of his girlfriends you know so yeah. for me it was like it was fun I mean granted I went through a lot of weird gross times as well and I'm not saying or negating you know someone else's experience but it was like give me a break. Like everybody knew the rules of this Playboy playground. You know, it was just like very obvious. It was obvious to me at 14, 15, 16, and 17. So I don't understand how some of these women didn't understand these rules and guidelines. In your book, you share that your first experience with drugs was at the age of 11. How did this initial encounter affect your life? Did you struggle with addiction later on? I did. I mean, it, it definitely, um, I found my first joint, you know, in the game room, in the bathroom, it was like on some like shelf or like peeking around at different things and found it in a matchbook. And I think I like hit it and didn't know what to do with it at first. And then I went back like another day and got it and tried it. So I definitely got high for the first time by finding this small little joint. 
I didn't blame only the Playboy Mansion because I don't know, I'm in recovery now. And I think a lot of like people who are, are sort of born with addiction, you know, traits that sort of lead you one way or the other. I mean, I was always a kid who wanted to escape, you know, my first addiction was candy. I used to go to 7-Eleven and buy, you know, Jolly Ranchers for 10 cents and then go to Beverly Hills, you know, elementary school and sell them to the girls for a dollar and make a profit. You know, I mean, this is, you know, fifth grade or sixth grade. So, you know, my my first addiction was sugar. So it's it's like it's hard to blame that on the Playboy Mansion. Yeah. Was it more easily accessible? Sure. It was also accessible in elementary school and high school and college. I mean, blame that environment for the drugs. How did growing up in the Playboy Mansion affect your childhood? Did growing up around sex so young affect your sexuality or intimacy life? Definitely. That is something I do believe was completely affected by growing up there. Um, I was pulled away from my mother at such a young age. My father really, you know, hated her and had such a disdain for her and, they went through this bitter custody battle and that was really, really tough, of course, not having a mother in my life. So I do believe that this sort of like fantasy land, you know, I mean, offered me a way to have like a fake mommy. And I do believe that my sexuality was shaped because I was in such dire need of like a mother figure that I would have done anything, you know, at the time to have that sort of love and affection and nurturance. And who I call Kendall in my book was really someone who was also very lost and lonely at the time. And although she was obviously much older than me, she just, she was very lost. I think we both felt like children in a sense. Like we both had like our fathers, you know, who were like controlling us and like lost souls and fantasy land together. And then you have my father and half who really, you know, no one cares about like girls being together up there. It was very common. So I, I don't think that was ever an issue. Um, I think it was actually okay. I mean, I know from my, from my father's perspective at the time, it was like, okay, well, I don't want you speaking to your mother, but here's this like fake mommy, like go run around and play with her, you know? So they knew we were hanging out. It wasn't like a secret, uh, secret to the outside world, but not up there. Uh, I think that that sort of became something that they wanted to put an end to when people started, you know, finding out about that around town. You know, when we started, we would start, we would run around town together just to sort of get off the mansion property. And that's when it became an issue because then it became known that Hefner's girlfriend was having an underage affair with his best friend's daughter. So again, because his, the, the public image of Playboy and the company were such a party to have, that became something that he would obviously need to address with his marketing machine. What was Hefner like? Did you view him as an uncle figure? I did. I mean, I always viewed him from a very young age as an uncle, second father figure. Um, he was always someone who was very gracious and kind and generous. And from a young age, I was always taught that this was sort of like this weird sort of like incestuous environment that had no boundaries. Um, you know, from a young age, would see half like open mouth kissing other playmates and other girls and other people. And like, it wasn't malicious, you know, it wasn't like, it was more like sensual, like, 
something that was very common there for that environment that sort of offered this sort of like free love, you know, open sexuality. And, and it was just something that I was always taught that, oh, that's what people do when they love each other kind of a thing. And even though it's, it sounds a little twisted and disturbing, especially like looking back in hindsight, it now sober, looking back on it, I obviously have much more clarity and can see that the boundaries that were crossed were obviously so inappropriate, especially for a child to be around and to witness and to experience. Uh, at the time when I was coming up in that environment, you know, I, it was just the norm, you know, all love each other. And there's no like boundaries between, it was like love was expressed through like physical affection, so to speak. It's a fantasy land. So it's like, you know, it's like being, you know, it, it's like all the different, it's like this magical kingdom. It's like, it's a fairy tale. It was just like growing up in, an environment that like I had its own set of rules. And I always was very clear, my father and have always made it clear, like never get too attached to the girls, never get too attached to them. Like that was sort of like a rule that I was like, you know, brainwashed growing up to like, to think about these women as people that would sort of come and go. And they did, I mean, they did come and go like, and they were mutual, they were there consent, you know, they were there basically benefiting as much as the men were at least that's what I saw you know that's what that's what I saw and then like if you look at their bank accounts like before they arrived and after I mean there's just like a massive drastic difference it's hard to complain when you're like 20 million dollars richer you know it's like exactly give me a break break. it's just like there's the door there's a hundred of you to take your place I mean kind of switch to cut to more present day. I mean, give you an example, like there was, of course, like a lot of stuff that I was very frustrated about. And we all, half of my father decided to end this like five-year secret affair that I had or publicly secret affair that I had with his girlfriend. And we can, women that I saw who, the, who were living there, like the different girlfriends and groups of girlfriends, it's marketing machine. There was like two different halves. It was like the, the, the one who created Playboy and this, this brand. And then there was the man, the person, right? The private life. So it was like two different people. And the marketing machine obviously was all about image and, you know, money and how to keep the public believing the facade, you know, the image of what they were trying to you know, project, project into the universe, right? Which was obviously that he's the big playboy and has all these girls around them. It's like, you know, but they were on payrolls, right? So the girls were on payrolls, so most of them. And I mean, I do believe like in Kimberly's case, when he married Kimberly, like he did want to settle down during that time and have kids. So that's a different time period and a different scenario, but many of the other you know girlfriends were just really understood like getting into you know and if they didn't there was always time to leave you know it no one was being held against their will it was just like so it's just a little frustrating for me because I, I feel like I'm in the middle you know like I have a lot of compassion for myself that sure at 17 I was you know involved in many of these different like scenarios and, you know, that were very 
appropriate, you know, when my father and half did try to, um, you know, break up this, this affair that I was having, you know, they did kind of arrange this like orgy and like, but just like, so that I would find out and walk in on Kendall, like sleeping with my father and half and my, my father's girlfriend at the time. And it was like, of course, like I was heartbroken you know, say is like, of course, like no 17 year old should have to go through that. Right. No 17 year old should be subjected to like their uncle figure, like wanting to watch them, you know, fool around with their girlfriend at the time. Right. Like that was very evident to me. Like he was definitely a man who preferred to watch. So, and he preferred to watch women together. So looking back, it's like horrifying that I had to go through that experience, you know, and it was also, it made me very uncomfortable and I'm so glad it wasn't taken, you know, any steps further, but I mean, really why I wanted to do this doc series is because I wanted to get out more than that stuff, more than like the me too stuff. It's more like the hypocrisy, you know, it's like this big facade of like, oh, I'm king of the free, you know, of the first amendment and freedom of speech in this country. But then your book comes out and I silence you. And that was something that I was very passionate about trying to, you know, really get out of my system because it's you know, that was really more infuriating because it was like, well, wait a minute, everything I grew up believing was true was really just a big lie. And that's example in 2004 when ICM uh, sold the book to HarperCollins um, and then we were working on edits and, you know, getting it together and they had to delete 200 pages for legal reasons at the time. And what happened was Hef had somebody who was working in a studio call up and uh, ask HarperCollins for a copy of my manuscript before it was published. And he was like, the person at the studio was pretending that they wanted to make it into a movie, right? And he was sent the manuscript, of course, have read it a year earlier before it came out. And he had plenty of time with his marketing machine to get together and sort of manufacture the show, The Girls Next Door, to sort of you know, dilute the gravity of what I was writing about, which was all the underage drugs and sex and that sort of thing. And the offshoots of the mini mansions and all these, you know, secondary housing, you know, system that was in place for women who didn't make the cut, who didn't become playmates, who, you know, who want to be playmates, that sort of thing. So that's a whole other thing I write about in my book called like the mini mansions, you know, they're like the shadow mansions from the Playboy Mansion. And I just feel like Hef really was just a, a genius at marketing. So he really, you know, put together this show that would portray a completely different side of Playboy. And it was scripted in many ways. So obviously these women knew that what they were saying and what they were doing. Uh, it really just portrayed like a false image of what was happening there. And particularly hard for me because I was just like, you know, a lot of these girls are just like, when I'm sitting here, like screaming the truth and, you know, exposing the dark underbelly and really being a pioneer, you know, trying to really talk about what's really going on, you know, behind the facade. It's like, no one believed me, you know, like they, they like put their nose up at me and like, kind of like shunned me, you know? I think you were really one of the first people to call Hef out, especially coming from someone on the inside. So you're saying your book inspired Hef's reality show, The Girls Next Door. You don't think 
his show would have even existed without your book, which actually came first? A hundred percent not. hundred percent. It was a manufactured response to my book that the marketing machine created to take the attention away from, you know, his best friend's, you know, daughter, his best friend and doctor, live-in doctor's daughter who wrote this book, you know, sort of revealing the inside, you know, dealings of what happened. It's like being in the mafia. Nobody in the mafia writes about being in the mafia. You know, it's like- Exactly, yeah. So it was the same, that's the best analogy. So I was trying to write about something but I was also still there and I was still hanging out there all the time. And I thought it was Hef was going to be proud of me and happy for me because I, he believed in the first amendment and freedom of speech. So I genuinely believed that he was going to be happy for me. And when he did call me to congratulate me, uh, cause I was like out at a restaurant when he called, whatever. And I, I just remember like when he called like, he was like, congratulations, you know, um, your father and I are so proud of you. If you could just do me a favor and fax um, a list of your interviews, you know, when you go to New York, your father and I want to make sure to record them, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, of course. And thank you. You know, I'm so excited. Thank you for calling. You know, he was like, you know, if you could just also do me a favor and just during your interviews, like, don't tell anybody that I knew about your affair with Kendall, you know, I just don't really want it getting out. And I was like, okay, yeah, no, no problem. Because again, my loyalty was still to these men, right? It's still, I'm still family. I'm still, I'm still in it. I'm still very in it. And so I didn't think it was a big deal. I was like, yeah, no problem. I don't need to tell people that you knew and didn't. And then what happened was like Harper Collins had gone out of their way to set all these interviews. I think Anderson Cooper was set to like walk me around the Playboy Mansion property the day of the book release, the day of the book release, you know, and I was going to show him all the, like the room that I had and like, you know, walk Anderson Cooper all around the property and literally. And then I was set to be on Larry King who gave me a quote for the cover of the book and, you know, a bunch of other interviews that were, that were canceled in succession. Like all of them were just boom, canceled, like one by one by one, like a domino effect. It's devastating because that really silenced me. Wow. So Hef really beat you to the chase in terms of your media coverage. In the end, he sabotaged all of the interviews he asked you about. He did. He did wow. sabotage me. I mean, if there's anything that, you know, I would love to voice. It's, it's not the underage sex and the underage, you know, boundary crossings and all that. Because again, even though I was a kid, you know, I was still hanging out there. I mean, I could have just, I don't know, found a friend's couch to crash on. Like I have to take some kind of responsibility for my, you know, for even though I was like raised in it and it was family, like I just, I can't blame other people for, an environment that was also very fun, you know? I mean, there was a lot of fun times there too. And a lot of those fun times beat out the, the negative times. And I am very annoyed, still annoyed, very. The hypocrisy, it's like the hypocrisy is what gets me because 
it's like, wait a minute, you're the king of the First Amendment and freedom of speech in our country. And just the irony that he is the hypocrisy of him just like silencing me and canceling my interviews and creating this show to distract from the real truth. Um, I mean, of course it crushed me. It just crushed me. And no one believed me. So even the girlfriends at the time, like I said, like I would try to be honest. I would try, they would all like look the other way. You know what I mean? It's like, they didn't want to look at me. It's like, oh, she's being like outcasted now. Like, oh God. But I wasn't really outcasted in the sense of like, oh, we don't want you to come, come here anymore. I was still going there and still involved in the inner circle. I was just being sort of like given the cold shoulder. You know what I mean? And that was almost more painful because- to have everybody giving you the cold shoulder when you're trying to speak truth is devastating. Yes, exactly. Hefner was a publisher himself. He knew what he was doing. He touted being the king of freedom of speech and the First Amendment to the public in the Playboy marketing machine. And then he used that against you and tried to yield his power to silence you behind the scenes. By the way, I appreciate your acknowledging that I wrote about this first. Um, yes. Because I, he, because I did. And I, you know, I was told by A&E when I signed on to do this project that they would acknowledge me and they would sort of like, I provided a lot of source material for them. You know, I, I gave them my doc series transcript. I, you know, gave them my TV pilot that I've written, my movie script that I've written. I've given them, you know, obviously they had my book, um, the 200 pages that were deleted from the book. So a lot of these themes and concepts that are in the, you know, the 10 part doc series really originated from my book and my materials. I mean, many of the themes, many of the themes. I really talk about the girls who are victims or the women who are victims in the offshoot from the Playboy Mansion, which is this whole section of my book about the mini mansions and I believe in episode nine, it's called like shadow mansions, but it, it's really, they were mini mansions because as a child, I sort of coined that term, which is that all these like houses that were in the neighborhood um, of Heifer Circle of men who were very wealthy, they would sort of house these young girls who didn't make the cut, who wanted to be playmates, who wanted to be famous models and actresses. And they would offer them you know, modeling contracts and, you know, they would pretend that they own modeling agencies and they would say, here's free housing and come live in this mansion. And we'll, we'll get, we'll turn you into that playmate potential, you know, we'll do the playmate makeover and we'll get surgery for you. And, you know, so I really expose that whole underbelly um, in my book. And I really, and also like, you know, the whole blackmailing system, the whole like, you know, debts and favors owed and that whole system of just this dark underbelly are really hard because, you know, a lot of these themes and concepts that I've been passionate about for so long, it's like, I'm seeing it again in someone else's project. That's the worst. It's like plagiarizing your own original content in a large studio setting. It's awful. Yeah, it's it's brutal. I wanted to ask you about those mini mansions. It wasn't only Hef, as you said. There were these other men involved in scouting and ushering in these quote-unquote models from all over the world, many of whom were underage with no paperwork from Europe and overseas. You mentioned in your book Mr. Don Michaels and Eric Jacobs, 
Can you go into more detail about how these quote-unquote talent agents really took advantage and manipulated the girls by using their status as a power pimp in Hollywood to their advantage? Yeah, and wow, that is just amazing that you picked up on that because it's a—it's literally a whole um, episode in this A&E doc series that'll be called like shadow mansions. You know, again, it was like, you know, they didn't want to use the term mini mansion. So they just like called them shadow mansions. But it's really, you know, in this episode, it will be about men like Bernie Kornfeld, who I wrote about in my book and sort of discuss, he's passed away now, but he was one of the original owners of the Pips Cigar Bar in Beverly Hills back in the day. And that was a place where all the men would go. And only like young hot girls were invited there. And I was always there with all the men because I would I was able to tag along with them. And this guy, Bernie Kornfeld, um, had like a mini mansion. He had this big mansion. They pretended to own like these modeling agencies. And he was one of many guys. Um, I mentioned all their names because some of them are still alive. Um, he's one of many men in Hefner's circle who you know, really saw an opportunity to replicate um, Stefner did very successfully. And that was to sort of like pull all these young girls in from all over the country and all over the world, really, and offer them opportunities in exchange for, you know, giving them hopes and promises of becoming, you know, rich and famous. And so that's what these, the talent scouts were the guys that I was, I was writing about them. Um, how they would, how they would go out into the community and, you know, or place little ads, you know, across the country and, you know, want to be a playmate. Um, you know, they would fly in girls from all over. And, you know, unfortunately in these, in these mini mansions, a lot of times because it was like a little it was much more darker vibe than the playboy mansion you know in fact this whole tone in my opinion is like more of the tone of what i saw in the mini mansions off the playboy mansion property it was like these young girls who really were desperate to be you know become playmates or maybe they were rejected from being a playmate or they just really wanted to be models and actresses and they would, you know, think that they were being signed to modeling agencies and given this sort of opportunity to live in this mansion. And that's where I really saw more of the drugs, you know, more of the girls being given drugs and, you know, really being coerced into like a lot of situations that I think they wouldn't have normally been in, you know, and it was just really, it was very hard for me to see that very. Yes, exactly. In your book, you talk about how these girls like Paulina Sevson suddenly died of a quote-unquote overdose and was left to die bleeding on the bathroom floor after servicing one of the men at a Malibu mini mansion party. Her death was used as collateral in the series of private security cover-ups. You wanted to call the police immediately when you found her body in that bathroom. Could you go into detail about how these men who acted as these girls' owners you the girls is expendable and easily replaceable by the hundreds of girls on the waiting list vying to become the next potential playmate and how this quote modeling scam was human trafficking in disguise. This process really dehumanized these girls. How did these networks of quote unquote talent agents, AKA pimps who preyed on these young models and directed their private security to dispose of them at a moment's notice without their parents even knowing where they went. Right. I presented just, 
that young girl that comes to Los Angeles, you know, to become rich and famous and, you know, is really, you know, shuffled into these, like, into like the mini mansion systems where she, I mean, it, it happens everywhere, obviously. I mean, those kind of, that those kind of girls are really, you know, unfortunately anywhere, but it was really like the, it's like the security. It's like they didn't, they, it was like all these people were above the law. You know, they had like sheriff's badges. They had, they had the governor in their pocket. They had so many politicians that were attending their parties. I mean, just like you would hear with like this whole Jeffrey Epstein situation. It's very similar, lots of similar themes from what I experienced. Um, and everything, they handled everything themselves, like the mafia would, it, it, you know, they were not going to, why do they need to bother getting, you know, involving the police or involving the feds when they're perfectly capable of like handling so much of this themselves? And that's what they did. I mean, so if someone OD'd, they, there was no reason for them to, you know, bring attention to themselves and their business and what they were doing at the time. And you know, I believe that the mini mansions were really a place to groom these girls into becoming escorts and eventually into trafficking. I mean, that's a hundred percent looking back on it with a clear, sober, you know, mind. Now I can see that that's exactly what it was. And I think that's really terrifying because, you know, those girls were not given a manual, you know what I mean? Those girls were not, you know, whispered in their ear by Hef's secretary saying, hey, you know, Hef would like to know if you want to come down to his room. You know, that's very different when someone's like, it's like you're being asked, like, do you want to do this? You know, or here's a list of guidelines that we expect from you, one through 10, if you want to get your paycheck, you know, very different than these young girls who were sort of shuffled into these mini mansion system where they thought it was like, it was like they thought they were getting opportunities, but it was all just a big sham, you know? So to me, watching that was just a lot more devastating um, because like they didn't know what they were in for. Exactly. But I think today these girls really do know what's happening and they take full advantage. This normalized prostitution has never really changed and the girls are in for the benefits. The way you describe these mini mansion situations is very similar to how the network of LA pimps work today in tandem with the quote-unquote modeling agencies. Girls are trafficked in from different countries and states all coming to LA. They infiltrate into the young Hollywood crowd and get paired up with certain men in power positions in entertainment, investment banking, and sports, which they service. They manufacture these girls on an assembly line and market them as quote-unquote influencers and models. They're flown all around on private jets, shipped to locations like the Bahamas, Aspen, and Tulum to service these men and get some free dinners and Instagram pictures at the St. Regis along the way. Given payment and bonuses like $20,000 box seat tickets at SoFi Stadium for the Super Bowl, being masked as influencers or TikTokers with millions of followers, Meanwhile, they're owned by these Hollywood talent agents who act as their pimps, taking cuts and selling these girls like cattle. Your stories of these mini mansions really morphed and matured into the modern day Instagram models who live in these model houses in the hills and are complicit in the process. They come to LA for fame and they get it with a heavy price, but they're willing to pay. 
This was all made possible by technology, big tech, and the social media platforms themselves. That is so perceptive of you, by the way, because I mean, that is no one has really been able to like analyze that in such a way that like, you know, until all of these, until this underground system is called out, none of these girls are really going to wake up to the reality of what they're involved in. You know what I mean? Um, And many of them probably feel stuck and many of them probably are scared to get out. And, you know, my heart breaks for them because that's what I saw growing up. Both of us grew up in LA. We understood how the system worked. So we would look out and know exactly what to look for. These girls are coming to LA at 14, 15, 16 to become quote unquote models, but they don't even know what they're in for until it's too late. Once they get too old or their pimps get sick of them and don't want them on payroll anymore, they discard them and they disappear into thin air. I mean, you see these girls who are manufactured as the hottest thing, and then the next day she falls off the face of the earth. You look at it and it's scary to watch. I think your network was a bit smaller in scale because the internet didn't exist and Hef was the king of this entire sexual institution, but now it's really out of control and it's international. I agree 100%. I honestly, this is what my TV series is about that I wrote. I mean, this is like, this is it because it's, it's like that... It's like a female version of like taken, you know, because it's yes. just like it's crazy that, you know, what can actually what can actually happen to these girls. And like you said, some of them, they're just so naive and and some of them are not. I mean, some of them are in for the ride. They know what they're doing. They know what they're signing up for. Exactly. But, but then there's those there's the others who are really just naive and innocent and and really they they won't know what hit them until it's too late and then they feel stuck and that's who my heart breaks for you know my heart breaks for those girls that really are are not climbing their way to the top and you know inclining their way and trying to get into these you know positions where they can make millions I think they're just happy-go-lucky people personalities that you know don't realize um, what's around the corner Thank you for tuning in to this special edition episode of Facts with Fiona. Stay tuned for part two of Inside Playboy with Jennifer Saganor dropping Monday, February 21st, exclusively on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and iHeartRadio.